Well, hello, church, and good morning, and happy new year. In case you lost track, Chinese New Year is just a couple days away. I know that uh, because we got to host this weekend the regional Chinese New Year celebration. Here we have a picture. I got to sit in the front road. We have this. There we are. This is our stage. You can see this is us right here. There was a, a Chinese lion dance yesterday. It was the super coolest thing. I love, I don't know if you know, we've gotten to be hospitable in so new ways in this last little season, the community band, which we've hosted before, but then also the, the ETSU jazz band, and then uh, the local Chinese community was here. It was so cool. Uh, they had amazing performances. Uh, my family, we, we came for the show, hymns in Chinese, and violin, and piano, and classical guitar, and lion dancing. It was pretty cool. Uh, so it was a lot of fun, and thank you for, uh, you don't know it, but you were part of the hospitality that we showed, and they passed on their thanks to our congregation for that. A lot of stuff going on right now. Uh, Love Month starts this week. Uh, we are officially in February. It is Love Month, so uh, make sure you are on that. Uh, lots of things happening this month. Please stop by the atrium, uh, sign up for those. Still a chance to fill out a connection card. 62 people last week said they want to jump into one of our groups, filled out one of these cards, and more just went to a group, read the directory, and went straight to a group. So that's amazing. Uh, that is double what we've ever had in a one Sunday connection. Uh, so that's incredible. So praise God for that. We're excited about that. Uh, we're continuing this New Testament in a year thing. Okay, now, so I got to warn you, this is going to be the last week where we're lined up right with it in sermons, okay? So from here on out, we'll remind you, but you got to keep up with it on your own, okay? So this last week, we read Matthew 21 through 25, and next week, we read Matthew chapter 26 through Mark chapter 2. Okay, so last week, I was talking to somebody about this New Testament in a year thing, and they said to me, oh, you know, I just got behind, and I haven't really done it. I sure wish it would have been fun, but oh, well guess what? We're starting a brand new book of the Bible this week. It's the perfect week to jump in. Don't say you missed it, okay? You didn't miss it. You just missed Matthew. So jump in with us this week. Start reading Mark chapter 1. Get one of these little guides or get the daily guide that's printed out on regular paper. If you like that, jump in. Don't miss uh, this, uh, this New Testament year. Also, I hope you uh, got on your way in. If not, grab on your way out. I didn't bring one with me, uh, but I hope you got one of those uh, For Everyone cards that just kind of a look back at last year and celebrate uh, your generosity and what God allowed us to do through your generosity. We had an amazing year last year, uh, so grab one of those on the way out uh, if you didn't get one on the way in. All right. So, we're talking about the Gospel of Matthew here to kick off our year, kick off this New Testament reading project, and we've done five chapters a week. We, we talked about Matthew's attention to the kingship of Jesus, and then the new king who brings a new law, not for our judgment, but for our blessing. We talked about how the king moves through the world, challenging us to give our full allegiance to the king and nothing else. And last week, we looked at this amazing text from Matthew chapter 18 about how the king's people live together, uh, that the church is meant to be a place of mutual accountability, where we challenge one another when we're falling short of the way of Christ, and that that challenge, although it's difficult, and sometimes it even leads to us having to say, hey, listen, you are rebelling against God. I, we're not even sure you're on board with the kingdom anymore. Even though it's hard, 
It begins in love, and it ends in love, and it's motivated by love at every place in between. And then this week, uh, we get to Matthew 21 through 25. Now, if you did the reading with us last week, uh, you know there are some complicated texts in here. There is some confusing stuff in Matthew 21 through 25. It's some of the hardest stuff in the whole gospel of Matthew. Uh, We have controversies with the Pharisees. We have parables of dark judgment. We have prophecies about the future. And I really wish I had time to talk about all of it, but I I don't. Uh, And since I don't, I thought it might be helpful to focus on one of the texts from this last little chunk that I think is probably the most likely to be confusing to us. Like if you were just reading through and doing the reading, I thought I'd focus on the text that I think has the best shot of you finishing the chapter and going, what? What was that about? What did that say? And I don't know if that was your reaction, but it could have been. And so I thought I would work through it a little bit. Maybe together we can get a little sense of it. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, or there's one in the pew in front of you, or maybe you've got one on your phone, uh, jump with me to Matthew chapter 24, and we're just going to work our way through the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 24, and then a little bit into Matthew chapter 25 as well. So maybe you've got a Bible on paper, or there should be one in the pew, or grab it on your phone. All right, well first let's get the setting. Uh, The setting is that Jesus has been ministering in the temple in these last days, having controversies with the Pharisees, and things are heating up. Uh, The disciples can tell that half the people are really excited about Jesus, and half the people are ready to kill Jesus, and it turns out that the half that's ready to kill him, they're the half that has the army. So that's kind of the half that matters, so to speak, if you know what I'm saying. So tensions are high, and this conversation happens. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see these things? Jesus asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. They've had a tough week, Jesus and the disciples, and the disciples are just trying to cheer Jesus up a little bit. You know, you know, they're from the country. They're like, well, at least we get to see the buildings, you know? I mean, the buildings are nice. But Jesus won't even give them that. He says, these, these I love how he says, these things, you know, just, just, to, just to be as dismissive as possible. The, the temple of Herod, that's what they're talking about, it was considered to be one of the wonders of the world. Romans would travel all the way across the Mediterranean Sea just to see this temple. It was apparently glorious. And Jesus says, these things, they'll be torn down. They are, needless to say, undone by this. And so when they get a chance, they ask Jesus a question. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It's an interesting thing about this question. It's a two-part question. When will this happen? When will the stones be torn down? And What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, it's interesting. It's a two-part question, but we can't actually be sure whether the disciples know they're asking a two-part question. 
The disciples may think that these two events, the temple being torn down and Jesus' return, are the same. And so they might think they're asking one question, but they're definitely asking two. And so Jesus gives them a two-part answer. And this is where we sometimes get confused, but hopefully going through it together we can keep track of it. Jesus answers, watch out. Now, to understand this answer, he starts with the second part of their question. What will be the sign of your coming? Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So wars and rumors of wars, that doesn't mean the end is here. That means the end is ahead of us. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of this is just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, when you're pregnant, and I haven't been pregnant, but I've known some people who were. um, When you're pregnant, uh, there's some pain involved, I'm told. Apparently, it's not a big deal, but a little bit. You know, I'm just kidding. Okay, um, there's some pain involved. And, and, and the presence of that pain lets you know that something is happening. But it turns out that the occurrence, the beginning of that pain gives you very little information about when that something will happen. In fact, some people go into what's called false labor. They have the pain of labor months before the baby actually comes. And that's what Jesus says. Don't be distracted When you see the political turmoil of their day or our day, these kinds of things will happen. Don't be distracted by famines or earthquakes or tsunamis. That's just the beginning of the birth pain. Yes, it means something is happening, but it gives you no information about when I'm coming back. He goes on with more things that I love. They asked for a sign. He starts by telling them all the things that aren't a sign. So nations, wars, famines, earthquakes, no, it doesn't really give you much information. He goes on. You'll be handed over and persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all the nations because of me. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray each other and hate each other. False prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will go cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So a few more things that won't be a sign that Jesus is coming back. Persecution doesn't give us any clear indication of when he returns. Division in the church doesn't give us any clear indication of when he will return. People falling away, people coming to faith doesn't give us any clear indication. All this stuff, Jesus says, it's the kind of stuff that's going to keep on happening. And then he transitions in the middle of his explanation of all the things that don't count as signs to give us a little advice. He says, in light of this, in light of how unpredictable my return will be, I've got two jobs for you. Number one, stand firm. For the one who stands firm all the way to the end will be saved. And number two, preach the gospel. Because this gospel of my kingdom will be preached to the whole world before the end can possibly come. This is why we as a church, 
must never waver in our declaration of Christ alone as Lord because our first responsibility while we wait for the return of Jesus is to stand firm. And this is why we as a church must never do anything less than be a missionary people. It's never okay for us to be a kind of huddled up people hiding out waiting for Jesus to come back because Jesus says you can't predict when I'm coming back and when I need you to be is a missionary people until the day I return. Now then, in the midst of Christ's broader argument of things that don't count as signs that I'm returning, wars, famines, earthquakes, he gives a specific example of something else that doesn't count as a sign that I'm returning. The specific example is the thing they asked about. When are the stones being thrown down? So he says, So, when you see standing in the holy place, this is the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, that's a reference to Daniel and a previous destruction of a temple that was prophesied in Daniel chapters 7 through 12, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetops go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Jesus is predicting here what happened in uh, the year 70. The destruction of Jerusalem was terrible and great. It was not just the destruction of that city. It was intended by the Romans to be the systematic elimination of the Jewish people. And the Jewish nation was, in fact, as Jesus predicted, scattered all over the known world, driven out of Jerusalem and out of their homeland. And at an event that awful, Jesus is saying, I could see why you would think that's the end and the Messiah will return. But look what he goes on to say. If at that time anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Look, I'm telling you in advance. He doesn't want that many of them are going to live to see this event. He doesn't want them to be confused. I'm telling you in advance. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe them. Jesus is teaching against a temptation that is still with us to today to look at the events of geopolitics to look at disasters and persecutions and wars and national politics and somehow try to use that to make a prediction about Jesus return and Jesus first says generally nope that's not how it works and then he says specifically about this one event in AD 70 you can't use that to predict my return and now he's going to really answer their question. How will they know he's coming back? Verse 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible all the way to the west, so will be the, son, the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, 
The vultures gather. You don't have to go hunt for a carcass. The vultures find it for you. They fly above. Everybody can see it for miles around. He says, after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. As if to say, don't worry, you'll know. It won't take some special prophet counting words in the Bible or studying geopolitics or looking for this earthquake or that famine. You'll know, he says, when I come back, everyone will know. Then will appear, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. All the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels ahead with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, these unmistakable, uncontestable, obvious, global things, you'll know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His disciples ask him, perhaps unknowingly, a two-part question. When will the stones be torn down? And what will be the sign of your returning? And he mainly focuses on the second And his answer is this simple. Don't think that you can predict my return from the subtleties of world events. No matter how big they seem to you, even as big as the destruction of Jerusalem, don't think that's how you predict my return. I will return when I return, and when I do, you won't have to have some prophet somewhere predict it, because everybody will know. And then in case there's any misunderstanding, he goes on, verse 36, because about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. And took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and another left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you did not expect. A couple lessons to make sure we haven't missed what Jesus is saying. The first lesson is this. We need to remember the truth that Jesus Christ, the King of creation, will return to reign. Christ is coming back to reign over His creation And I know it's been a long time, and sometimes the longer you wait, the more you can begin to think that it isn't real or it isn't happening. And so Christ gives us His teaching, preparing His people for a long wait, but letting them know He is coming back. The second thing we've got to say, and 
it, it really does boggle my mind that the church has to keep saying this so often, but we have to say it. We cannot predict the return of Christ. We, we just can't do it. And anyone who tries, based on world events or reading the Bible some magic way, anyone who tries, Christ calls a liar and a false prophet. When I was a teenager, somebody published a book called 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. They wrote a book the next year, too. Anybody know what it's called? 89 Reasons That Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. And guess what? People bought the book. Like, why do you buy the book? He was clear. He doesn't know what he's talking about, or he would have been right the year before. And here's the other crazy thing about that 89 Reasons That Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. It was published and for sale on January of 1989, which means he had to have written it in 1988, which means he didn't even believe his first prophecy. He didn't even believe it. You know, and, and, and I'd like to laugh like 1988 was some super long time ago, but it wasn't. In 2012, everybody went crazy again with some radio preacher, who pre and it's going to happen again. And your friends and neighbors are going to get all excited about somebody who says they know, and you're going to take them to this text and say, Jesus is clear. Anybody who says they can look at world events or look what happened in Israel or Russia or here or there, anybody who can look at world events and say, yep, he's back, Jesus is super clear, that person is a liar and a false prophet. And he uses some pretty harsh language. The last thing, though, that Jesus wants to teach us, and this is the most important, is that while we wait for Jesus' return, which no one can predict, we have two jobs to do. We've got to stay ready and stay on mission. In fact, just after this prophecy, goes, Jesus goes into four parables, and we don't have time to read all of them, but I just want to touch on them real lightly. You can go back and read them in Matthew 24 and 25. Four parables that remind us to do just that, to stay ready and stay on mission. Because that's the big point of this prophecy. The big point is not to debunk the predictors, although it does do that, and you can help me with that. If you hear somebody predicting, just say, nope, Jesus said nope. Okay, but the big point is this last one. Stay ready and stay on mission. Uh, right there, the next thing in chapter 24, listen to this parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants and his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a harsh parable, but it's a clear message. If you want to be ready for the return of Christ, stay at work on the mission of Christ. In particular, the mission here is the mission of caring for the people of God's kingdom. You want to make sure you're ready for Christ's return? Never stop caring for one another, he says. Uh, the next parable, the top of Matthew 25. Uh, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. 
The wise ones, whoever took oil in jars along with their lamps, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, a cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it's a, it's a dark parable. It's a harsh parable. But the message is clear. Stay faithful for the long wait. Don't just plan on a faith that's going to last you for the week or the month or the year, but plan on a faithful submission to Christ that will last you for the long endurance. Jesus said in His prophecy, those who stand firm to the end will be saved. And then He makes it clear that we have no idea how far away The end is. The next parable, I'll let you read it for yourself. It's a great parable. It's about three servants, each one of them given some part of the master's wealth and charged to keep the master's wealth. Two go out and use it. They invest it. They work with it. They try something. And one is held back by fear. And they cower in the corner by fear. And it's so interesting. When the master returns... The two that took risks are blessed, and the one who responded in fear is cursed because he did not trust enough in the master. He says, at least you could have tried something. At least you could have invested it. And I think the message of Jesus for us in this parable is that Jesus expects his kingdom to not cower in fear in a corner, but to boldly be about the mission of Christ, investing the gifts that God has given us, using what God has given for us to hoard what God has given us out of fear is to reject the very lordship of Jesus. We're meant to use the gifts we're given. The fourth parable of the four, these four parables of the waiting, is the longest of them, and it's the best known. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. In this parable, the king gathers all the people together. And then based on one interesting criteria, he divides them. To the sheep, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he goes on to say basically the opposite to the goats. You ignored all these same people, the stranger and the foreigner and the naked and the imprisoned. Jesus, you see, is about to die on a cross, 
and be resurrected and ascend to the Father. But before he goes, he wants his disciples to know how to wait. He wants his disciples to know how to wait for his return. He wants them to know he's coming back. The king will soon be here. And when he comes, the trumpets will announce it and there'll be no doubt that he is back. He wants them to know that we cannot predict his return by studying world events. It's not the way it works. And everyone who's ever tried, we now make fun of because they were wrong. And he wants them to know how to wait. How do we wait for the return of Christ? We care for one another. We are faithful and stand firm, prepared for the long wait. We are brave and bold in the mission of Christ. And we care for the least of these. For that is where we meet Christ. When we care for the least of these in our world. So church, don't be distracted by predictions. They're wrong. I know they are, because Jesus promised they would be. But do stay ready for Christ's return. Stand firm in your faith, and stay on mission, because the King will soon be back for His people. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Jesus, the King who reigns eternal and will one day soon come back to reign over us. And while we wait, God, protect us from the foolishness of predicting and instead teach us to stand firm and to stay on your mission of bearing witness to the kingdom even to the very ends of the earth. And now we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.